Today, we, uh, we're, we're ending the, the book of John. I can't believe it. We've been in the book of John for just about a year, uh, which, which, yeah, it doesn't seem like it. Uh, I'm really excited. I don't know if my cold hides it, but I'm really pumped uh, about this, this last chapter. Um, and I'm really excited. At the end of the service, I'll share where we're going next, what book we're going to take on next. I'm, I'm really excited about that, too. But let's just jump right in with our truth statement. <clears throat> Through his presence, forgiveness, and providence, Jesus enables his disciples to fulfill the gospel mission for which he sends them. All right, so Jesus, he's sending the disciples on a gospel mission, and, and the, the way that he is going to enable them to fulfill it is through his presence, through his forgiveness, through his providence, by resting in God's grace. I know it's been a couple weeks um, so let me, remind, let me remind you where we were in John 20. Uh, Jesus risen from the dead. The disciples at first, they don't know what's going on. The body's missing. They, they hear rumors that somebody stole it. Jesus reveals himself to them. Maybe you remember Thomas. He said, no, I, I'm not going to believe. And until I see the scars in his hands and in his side, I, I can't believe. And, and then Jesus meets him in that. Jesus promises that he will give them the Holy Spirit and that they will go and they'll preach this, this message of salvation, that we can be forgiven of our sins through the death of Jesus Christ. And John, John 20 really feels like the end of the book. Um, and, and it feels so much that way that some people have speculated that, that John 21 was added later, that maybe John came back and said, no, I got more to say, or someone else added it for him. Um, even verse 30, 30 and 31, at the end of John 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It, I can understand why it sounds like that's John signing off, that he's done. But really, there, there's no evidence that, that John 21 came later. So I'm not even going to waste my time debating that. Uh, I, I think it's actually really clear uh, why John 21 is here. Um, while, while it seems like the story's done, uh, Jesus is not done with Peter. Peter's a, a major figure in this gospel. And, and yes, he's seen the risen Lord, but there's been no resolution to Peter's bold proclamation that he would die for Jesus. That even if everyone else denies Christ, that he will not. And, and then you know. You know he denies Christ three times. The, the rooster crows. He realizes that he was not at all the man that he thought he was. He was, he, he was a coward in, in his moment of truth. He cared more about saving himself than identifying with Jesus, who laid down his life for Peter. So Jesus isn't done with Peter. Jesus isn't done with us. He doesn't just leave us in our broken, guilty, shame-ridden state. He has work to do in us. And because of that work, he'll work through us. So let's jump in to John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So seven of the disciples are together. 
Jesus wasn't with them all the time after he, he, he rose from the dead and before his ascension. They're by themselves. And Simon seems to be kind of their unofficial leader. He says, I'm going fishing. And everyone says, yeah, we'll go with you. And some people wonder <clears throat> if what Peter did here was wrong. Like if this was uh, kind of symbolic of Peter going back to who he was before he met Jesus, going back to his old lifestyle. I don't know if that's exactly what's happening, but we do know that this is a real temptation for all of us, that we go back at times to the things we did or the person we were before we trusted in Jesus as our Savior from sin. We know what it's like to, to have tasted how good God is, how good it is to know Jesus but still go back to old habits, to sinful habits, to our former ways. And what do we find? We find that those ways are totally unsatisfying. And yet we keep trying the same thing, thinking that maybe it will work, but it's completely unproductive. Because we, we know the risen Lord. We, we've tasted and we've seen how good Jesus is. Nothing else comes close. Even what we used to consider good, it's now just trash. So maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe, maybe Peter's going back to what he did before. I do think, at least on some level, there, there's, there's self-reliance emerging here. And maybe he said something like this, or maybe you've thought this, I can't see Jesus right now. I know he's real. I know he's alive, but he doesn't seem to be here with me. If he knows I want him and need him, he sure hasn't decided to make himself known to me in my circumstances. I guess I'm going to make this happen on my own because I sure don't know what else to do. I don't know if that's what they were thinking or not. I do know they caught nothing, a night of labor with nothing to show for it. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. So I don't know if it was too dark or if the sun is rising, that maybe the sun's in their eyes and they can't understand who that figure is that's talking to them. Verse 5, Jesus said, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Now, as a fisherman, this can either be the best question in the world <laughs> or the worst. <laughs> I don't get amens here much. That was practically an amen. We'll take it. Uh, man, when I'm fishing and I'm catching fish, I want people to come by and go, have you caught anything? Yes, I have. Look at all these gigantic fish that I slayed. <laughs> or when it's no, I want to lie. I want to lie really badly. I want to say, yeah, I caught a ton of fish. I gutted them already, took them back home, and I'm back again for more. <laughs> I hate it when people ask me, like on the, on the Deschutes, I'll be fishing on the Deschutes, and rafters in the summer will, will come by, and I got my fly rod, and they ask, do you have a fish? And just in shame, I say, no, no fish today. So Jesus asks, do they have any fish? And he knows. He knows they don't have fish. So why is he asking? They needed to see their efforts accomplish nothing. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So now the guys who haven't caught fish are getting fishing advice, which, man, as a fisherman, like, you don't want anybody to give you advice, especially the guy on the shore, right? <laughs> so, and Peter, what's surprising is Peter's a professional fisherman, and yet he still takes this advice. Jesus says, cast on the right side, and Peter's like, shoot, the right side. I didn't even see that side. I was focused on the left this whole time. But for some reason, though, Peter doesn't. He doesn't know it's Jesus yet. 
But he does it. He casts to the right side. It says, so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, or probably John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped from work, and he threw himself into the sea. So John figures it out. He tells Peter it's the Lord. Peter goes crazy and jumps out of the boat to swim to Jesus. Now, now Peter, is, he's had this experience with Jesus before. Right? The first time he met Jesus, Luke records it for us. That He tells him, cast on the other side. They catch so many fish, another boat has to come over to help them haul it in. And, and when Peter gets ashore and stands before Jesus, he drops and he says, he, he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. I'm too messed up. I can't be around you. I'm a sinner. And really, that's a beginning understanding of the gospel. That, that Jesus, you are nothing like me. That I'm unworthy. That, that my sin, even, even what I consider a little sin, it is too much. And it, it, it's broken, this relationship that we we're supposed to have. At some point, though, Peter, he realizes the grace that Jesus offers. So this time, Peter has a completely different reaction. Now Peter, he knows it's Jesus. He gets his clothes on, jumps into the water, because he can't wait for the boat to get there. I don't know about you, I've never seen a person out swim a boat. Like, I don't think it's ever faster. Maybe I'm wrong. And John tells us that they're only like 100 yards away. I think he tells us... I think he's telling us they beat him, but anyway. Verse 8, the other disciples came to the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Verse 9, when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus had made them breakfast. He prepared the fire. He had fish already there. He, he didn't need their fish. He didn't need them to catch fish. Jesus doesn't need anything from us. He isn't lacking. Even what we give him, he's already provided to us. But he asked the disciples to get some fish in verse 10. He says, bring, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. That's how a fisherman talks. 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So some people are like, man, 153 fish, that's weird. I wonder what that symbolizes. Nothing. They caught a ton of fish, and they were excited. Right? God provided for them. There's, there's several weird theories, and none of them make sense that this symbolizes this or that. What, what does make sense is seven guys caught a ton of fish. They're divvying up their fish. They're going to count them out. Right? Myths and legends don't have random facts like this. Eyewitness accounts do. Fishermen remember the number of fish they caught. They remember how big their fish was, how much it weighed, how long it was. John saw this himself. So Jesus, he, he asked, get the fish. And, and he, he, who's he asked that to? He doesn't just ask Peter. He says it to them. He says, says, Jesus said to them, bring some fish. But Peter's the one that jumps up. And, and you, you wonder if, if he jumps up and he sits the other guys down and says, I got this. Because he runs over and he picks up this net full of 153 large fish and drags it himself. So first we see Peter jump out of this boat like a crazy man. 
And now he's manhandling this net full of fish all by himself. It feels like Peter's trying really, really hard. It looks to me like he's trying to prove himself to Christ. I wonder, do you ever do that? Do you ever feel like you have to show Jesus or maybe you have to show others what a good Christian you are, that, that you actually are worthy of being a child of God? I wonder if you feel like you need to prove how good you are. Because Peter, he was pretty out there in his behavior in this book. Like Remember when Jesus was arrested, he whips out the sword and chops off the guy's ear. We remember that when Jesus goes to wash his feet, he's like, no, 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 you can't do that. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And Jesus said, fine, wash all of me. We remember Peter asking, why can't I follow you, Jesus? Even if all these other guys deny you, I won't. I'll lay my life down for you. And now he's jumping out of boats and he's dragging nets full of fish. Peter's working really hard to show Jesus that he's in, that he is all in. We don't earn Jesus' love. We can't merit Jesus' favor. Jesus doesn't love you because you proved something to him. He doesn't love you because you're worthy. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he is love. He gives us grace, and it's completely unearned. He doesn't love Peter because he can carry a big, heavy net full of fish. He doesn't love you because you attend church. He doesn't love you because you're generous. He doesn't love you because you did more good things than bad things this week. He doesn't forgive sin because you lead a Bible study or you memorize scripture or you volunteer a lot of time. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he's chosen you and he is love. And this is counterintuitive to us in, in many ways. In school, we're, we're used to school, we, we get good grades either because we're just a smarty pants and we know the answers or we worked really hard and, and figured out the answers. So we, we get the grades that, that we deserve. Um, at work, you, you get promoted because you've proven yourself, right? You've proven yourself to be an asset to your company. Other people get passed up for promotions, but, but you have shown yourself that you're dedicated. You've shown yourself that you're, you're more skilled, you're hardworking. Other people haven't sacrificed like you, so you get rewarded. Uh, musicians, like even really, really talented musicians, just naturally gifted. Eventually, if they want to get better, they have to work. They have to work hard. So we live in systems that reward hard work and skills. And we find ourselves thinking along the lines of resumes and that's harmful to understanding how we relate with Jesus. That, that, that damages our, our view, potentially, of, of what a relationship with Christ is like. When we see how capable we are, we don't understand that we need Jesus. Your drive and your determination, your talents, those, might have given, they, those things might give you everything else in life, but they don't give you a relationship with Christ. In fact, it might be harming your ability to recognize that you need Jesus, that we need to rest in the grace of Jesus. The relationship with Jesus doesn't look like the systems of the world that demand resumes. Christians, we do work hard. Don't get me wrong. We, we pour out our lives for Jesus. He calls us to pick up our cross and follow after him, but it's out of thankfulness. Our, our obedience is a response to the grace that God has lavished on us. 
Valentine's Day just happened. Hope, hope it went well. Hope, hope you didn't mess anything up. I'm mainly thinking of men, which I don't know if that's sexist of me, but we seem to be the ones that mess up Valentine's Day. But hopefully you, you did something to show your significant other, right, to, to respond to them in love. If you bought them a, a card or candy or flowers or made a reservation, you didn't do it to prove that you love them, right? Like maybe you do that when you're dating. But man, not, not when you've been together for a long, long time. I don't, I don't get my wife. I don't write her a card so I can trick her into loving me. Right? I, I'm, I'm responding to the love of my wife. I, I'm responding. I'm pouring out my heart to her. Maybe it's clear with, with kids or grandkids or if you have nieces or nephews. You love them because you love them. Right? They're yours. You don't love them because they draw something worthy to stick on the fridge. You don't love them because they can, they can make a basket or, or, they, or they get really good grades. If anything, on paper, the transaction's really lopsided, right? Like, they cost you. They cost you a ton, but you love your kids because you love your kids. God loves you because you are his. He loves you because he is love. Our love, our obedience is a response to the love of Christ. It's not a way that we prove ourselves to him. It looks to me like Peter was in this rut. And he's trying to dig himself out. He felt like he needed to prove himself. He says, look at me, Jesus. I'll jump out of a boat for you. I'll carry, I'll carry a big old net full of fish for you. Proving yourself seems like it works when you're doing good. Right? If you're really self-disciplined, you feel good about yourself. You, you walk into church, someone asks, man, how's your walk with Jesus doing? And, and you base it on what you've done. You think, that's good. Right? I'm caught up in my Bible reading this week. I prayed for the persecuted church this week. I fasted. I forgave someone that I really think is a jerk. I memorized some scripture. I gave money, extra money, to this gospel cause. I did this for Jesus. I did that for Jesus. We feel good when we can point to the good things that we have done. But what if your week wasn't so disciplined? What if you walk into church, someone asks how you're doing, and you think through your week, man, I didn't make time to read my Bible at all. I only prayed about my own problems. I was kind of selfish this week. You end up feeling pretty distant from God. Maybe you looked at something this week that you promised you wouldn't look at again. You dabbled in an old sinful habit. When we're trying to prove ourselves to Jesus, eventually all we're going to prove is that we're broken and in need of Jesus. We need to base our relationship on what Jesus has done, on his finished work. Verse 12, Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus invites them. He says, eat with me. Let's have this meal together. It's a picture of, of the relationship that Jesus wants with us. He wants us to know him, be known by him. Jesus invites Peter to rest, to come, come sit, eat, be refreshed. Peter, be replenished. Let me refill you in ways you can never fill yourself. Peter's tired. He's been trying to prove himself for a long time. He's, he feels really guilty. And you know what? Feeling guilty is really tiring. Jesus invites him to rest in him, to rest in his finished work. Notice what John tells us about this fire. He says it's a charcoal fire. Last time Peter was around a charcoal fire was in the courtyard, denying Jesus for the third time. The same night that he boldly proclaimed he would never do that. Now he finds himself again around a charcoal fire, and this time it's a fire prepared by Jesus. 
we like to bury our shame. We like to bury our, our past without really dealing with it. We hope that we can run from it. Jesus seems to like to confront it. You wonder what it was like for him to see this fire. Did it immediately take him back to the courtyard, to his weakness, to his fear, to his self-preservation? We all know what it's like to fail like Peter. Maybe this year you said, this is the year I'm going to do the Bible read-through. And then Leviticus kicked your butt like it has to so many people. Maybe you find yourself coming back to old habits. Maybe you've been praying for opportunities to share about Jesus, and, and Jesus gives you one, and you recognize it, but your fear wins out. You don't say anything. Maybe, maybe like Peter, you've denied Jesus. Or, or maybe you haven't denied him. Maybe you've just downplayed your Christianity around your coworkers or friends or neighbors. Maybe you thought you knew how you would trust God in hardship, and then life punches you in the face, and you didn't cling to God like you thought you would. Have you confronted your failure, not on your own, but with Jesus? I hope that as we, as we look at this story with Jesus and Peter and see the grace that Jesus extends to Peter, we'll allow him to show us grace and forgiveness as well. Even the reminder of this fire is grace. It's an invitation to step out of the shame that Peter had no doubt carried with him once he realized he wasn't as courageous as he thought. That Jesus paid it all. And we, like Peter, need to rest in that forgiveness that's been earned by Christ's death. Verse 15, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And what does it mean, do you love me more than these? I think it's, do you love me more than these men, more than these disciples who you claimed that even if they deny you, I will not? He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And Peter, Peter figured out what Jesus was doing here, at least by the third time. Peter realized, I denied Jesus three times, now he's asking me three times. I don't know how small Peter felt here, but what Jesus is doing is actually an act of grace. Verse 18 says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to die for me. You're going to die actually a horrific death on a cross like I did. Now, Peter, he was confronted with the cost of following Jesus. And I don't want to know how I'm going to die. I, I do not want that at all. This does not look like a gift to Peter. But at some point, I guarantee it was. Because it means that Peter would be faithful to Jesus even unto death. Right? Peter had boasted he'd lay down his life for Jesus, but on his own, he was totally incapable of that. And Jesus is telling him, you're going to make good on that promise, but not by your own strength. You're going to do it by resting in me. And he gives this interesting imagery. He says, when you were young, you, you did what you wanted, but when you're old, you're going to stretch out your arms. Your hands, people will dress you 
like, like a kid stretching out their arms to mom or dad. Saying, pick me up, take me. I need you. That's what Peter would do with the rest of his life. I'm not saying he'd do it perfectly, but he would trust in God. And Peter would be faithful for decades. He would follow Jesus. He'd go on to write books in the Bible. He wouldn't be the man that cowers and denies Jesus. He would die for Jesus. This feels like a great place to end with Peter. And then he opens his mouth. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw uh, and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one uh, who had also leaned back against him during supper, this is probably John, uh, and said, Lord, uh, oh, sorry, uh, and John said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? What about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, quit comparing yourself. Comparison is a trap. Comparison is a thief. It robs us of contentment. It keeps us from thankfulness and joy. We compare, we compare what others have. We compare what others don't have or aren't dealing with. And Jesus says, stop it. Trust in my providence and follow me. He, he gives him this same invitation to follow me that he started with. And now Peter knows a bit about trying to follow Jesus by, by his own power, by striving. Peter's been humbled. He's ready to accept Jesus' invitation to trust in Jesus' forgiveness, to rest in his grace, to enjoy his presence, to follow his gospel mission to the ends of the earth. Verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's the close of John. By God's providence, Peter's failure is met by Jesus' grace. If Peter hadn't failed, he wouldn't have understood his need for Jesus to be his strength. Who knows how many more years he would have struggled striving in his own power to be the best he could for Jesus. But God was gracious, even through his failure, to show him his great, great need for Jesus. Have you accepted Jesus' invitation to rest in his finished work? Are you trusting in Jesus to save you from yourself and from your sin? Do you find yourself trying to save yourself by your own resume? Are you striving, trying to prove your value? Or are you resting in his love and his grace and responding to that grace by loving him in return? Do you fall into the trap of comparison rather than just trusting that Jesus provides? Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. We, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of John, a book that I've read who knows how many times, and, and yet your, your word is living and active. And it penetrates, Lord. And we, we've seen so many things through this book. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this picture of Peter, who, who you, you were not going to leave broken. You're going to heal him, and you're going to work through him, through those wounds, Lord. Jesus, we, we love you, Lord. We want to follow you wherever you lead. Lord, 
Don't let us try and do this on our own, God. God, I pray that when we fall flat on our face, we would see our need for you, Jesus. I pray for anyone who, who feels just guilt. God, I pray that they would trust you with that guilt, that they would run to you with that, Lord, that they would meet you in your grace and your love. Lord, we love you. It is in your name we pray. Amen.